Hello and welcome back. This is another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. It's a bi-weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. On today's show, Growing Food Without Growing Emissions, Karen Ross and farmer Brent Preston talk to me about what Canada's agriculture sector means for climate change. Then, the economics of public transit, how one of the most environmentally friendly commuting options makes ends meet. Marco D'Angelo from Canadian Urban Transit Association is here to talk to me about that. After that, we'll get a 60-second summary of a major new report. And Mike Moffitt wraps it all up by sharing five stories to watch in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. That clip, in case you're wondering, is taken from an undated promo video, probably from the 1960s, designed to market Manitoba's agricultural exports. If you want to see it in all its whimsical yesteryear majesty, I've included the link on this episode's webpage. But agriculture... It's a key Canadian economic sector and one that is enmeshed in our Canadian identity. Here's some stats. Almost 200,000 farms in Canada. They cover about 160 million acres. In other words, more than 7% of Canada's land is farmland. When it comes to the economy, agriculture employs 280,000 people directly and 2.3 million indirectly, meaning that more than 1 in 10 Canadians have some job that's related in one way or another to agriculture. The sector generates $112 billion in GDP, accounting for almost 5% of Canada's exports. But there's a downside. In 2018, Canada's agricultural sector was responsible for 73 megatons of greenhouse gas emissions, 10% of Canada's total emissions. So it's going to be hard to address climate change without addressing agriculture. That's true in Canada, and that's true globally. But we want to keep those jobs. We want to keep those exports and those economic benefits. Can we do both? To help answer that, I'm welcoming Karen Ross. She's the director of a farmer-led campaign called Farmers for Climate Solutions. Karen, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Karen, where do these 73 megatons of greenhouse gas pollution in agriculture come from? Yeah, that's a really good question. So maybe I'll just answer by talking about the three major greenhouse gases in our sector. So there's nitrous oxide, that's by far the largest growing one, and it predominantly comes from increasing use of fertilizers. So over the past few decades, our fertilizer use has dramatically increased in Canada, particularly in the prairies. The second is methane. Uh, Methane predominantly comes from the livestock industry, so we're thinking about enteric fermentation and manure management. Um, And then a smaller component is carbon dioxide, and that comes from fossil fuel burning in uh, tractors, farm machinery, equipment, farm buildings, uh, electricity, and even um, energy generation on farms. Hmm. And and you mentioned with nitrous oxide that it's been increasing. Is that true for all those greenhouse gas emissions in the agriculture sector? No, you know what? It's not true. So uh, while nitrous oxide is increasing, uh, methane and you know GHGs in general from the livestock industry, just in, as, an, as an example, has actually been decreasing over recent years. Hmm. Um, 
Uh, the other thing, uh, you mentioned nitrous oxide. I know that that's a particularly powerful greenhouse gas uh, emission, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. So, you know, nitrous oxide is about 300 times more powerful in terms of uh, greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Methane too. Methane's more powerful, but not quite so much. So about 25 times or so that of carbon dioxide. Okay. Okay. So nitrous oxide uh, being a, a particular uh, target for uh, for mitigating climate change in the sector. Um, how How do we lower those emissions? So I think simply put, we need to position farmers for success in the clean economy of the 21st century. Um, what I want to say is that, you know, in agriculture, we have tried and tested sort of proven practices that are already being implemented by Canadian farmers from coast to coast. So many of the climate solutions or, you know, climate friendly farming in Canada isn't new. It's not dependent on shiny new technologies, but rather these are things that farmers are doing still at a relatively small scale in terms of numbers of acres in Canada that could be adopted at much wider scales in order to significantly reduce emissions in our sector. Interesting. So reducing emissions in the sector is not about new technologies, but about uh, new practices and and expanding uh, existing practices. Karen, your your group also says that agriculture can be a climate solution by way of absorbing emissions from the air. How's that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, plants eat carbon dioxide through that, through that process of photosynthesis, right? So when the plants, quote unquote, eat the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, they're removing that pollution from the atmosphere, but then often they sequester it through their roots into the soil. So, you know, one of the biggest building blocks of the soil is carbon. So soil health in many ways is defined by the content of stored or locked in carbon you have in your soil. Mm. So in many ways that way, agriculture, you know, across the millions of acres that farmers farm, uh, we can be part of the solution in terms of sequestering carbon out of the air. Karen, tell tell us about the recommendations you submitted to the government just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. So, so we're asking the federal government for an investment of $300 million in the next federal budget to directly support farmers to adopt practices uh, that help to reduce emissions. And with their $300 million, we think we can reduce emissions in our sector by 10 megatons. So you mentioned at the outset that our ag sector contributes about just over 70 megatons annually in terms of GHGs. So 10 megatons is really quite substantial. It's about one seventh of that total emission budget. Uh, the kinds of um, supports or practices we're looking for supports from the government for are things like uh, cover cropping, improved nitrogen management. Um, you know, both of those get at the nitrogen problem, the nitrous oxide problem I was highlighting at the outset. We're thinking about, you know, rotational grazing in our livestock industries uh, that helps with soil carbon sequestration and, you know, protection of vital ecosystems like grasslands. Um, We're thinking a lot about the energy transition. You know, farmers have mostly been left out of uh, the transition towards cleaner fuels uh, or electrified vehicles. Um, So there's the need to really scale up the kind of programming available in our sector. Um, and then finally, we're thinking a lot about, you know, supports for protection, protecting wetlands and uh, treat areas, forests on ag lands. And finally, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, an overall program that would celebrate climate champions. That sounds really exciting, Karen. Um, 
and I could ask you a billion more questions, but I think what I'm going to do is jump over uh, to speak to Brent Preston and and see what uh, a frontline farmer thinks about uh, these recommendations. Uh, but first, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Eric. That's Karen Ross, Director of Farmers for Climate Solutions. I'm now welcoming Brent Preston. Brent is the co-owner with his wife of The New Farm, a 100-acre organic farm in southwestern Ontario. He wrote a book about his early adventures in farming called The New Farm. It became a national bestseller in 2018. And he's also the president of the Ecological Farmers Association of Ontario. Brent, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Brent, uh, tell us a little bit more about, uh, about your farm. So we run a uh, certified organic vegetable farm. Uh, we grow cut salads, cucumbers, um, primarily for the restaurant and food service uh, market. So we sell uh, wholesale vegetables to restaurants and, and uh, institutions just in southern Ontario. And when did you start farming? Uh, we've been farming for about 15 years. So it was, I think 2007 was our first season. And, and what have you learned over the years? What's been your experience with the environmental impact of, of farming? Well, I think farming is interesting because it obviously has arguably a bigger impact on the global environment than any other human activity, uh, you know, in terms of uh, species loss, um, loss of habitat, um, impacts on climate change, uh, impacts just on the physical landscape, deforestation, uh, agriculture is massive, but um, I think agriculture can be either a positive environmental force or a negative environmental force, depending on how it's practiced. Hmm. Um, I was just speaking with Karen Ross, who walked us through these these recommendations that uh, her group, Farmers for Climate Solutions, have made. You know, they include the reducing uh, nitrogen fertilizer, uh, increasing adoption of cover cropping, uh, normalizing rotational grazing. How many of those recommendations are practices that that you have already adopted, or or you think apply to your farm? Uh, pretty much all of them. So organic farms are not allowed to use any synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. So we've been um, farming for 15 years without ever using a single gram of nitrogen fertilizer. So we're, we're, we're acutely aware of what needs to be done in order to provide the nitrogen that plants need without getting it from synthetic sources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we, we, um, the sort of whole gamut of, of uh, practices that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and increase uh, carbon sequestration in the soil. We're trying to implement our far- on our farm, reducing tillage, um, planting lots of trees, as I mentioned, uh, rotational grazing. We, we now graze um, cattle that belong to an, our neighbor on our farm, and we're trying to do that in a way that, that enhances soil health on the farm and, and uh, improves our productivity. So pretty much all of the things that Farmers for Climate Solutions is is recommending the government try to promote and incentivize we've been doing for a number of years on our farm. And and what's the upside for, for farmers? Obviously, you know, you've got this ecological mindset, which is why you've, you've uh, adopted these practices already at your farm. For maybe, you know, the more business-like, the more conventional-minded farmer, um, what, what's the upside of adopting some of these practices? Well, I, th- I think, first of all, that, that every farmer is a, is a business-minded um, farmer. It's this, this profession is too, it's too difficult um, and too economically challenging to do it successfully without being 
very, very closely focused on the bottom line. And I think every farmer, every successful farmer is a shrewd business person because they, they have to be in order to stay in business. When we started and we looked at the kind of farm that we wanted to have, and we looked at all of these ecological farming practices, we thought that these, um, these practices were going to make it more difficult for us to be profitable. And what we found over the years as we started implementing these practices is that the opposite is true, that all of these practices that we're talking about are in the long term economically beneficial to the individual farmer. Brent, thanks for that uh, that extra background and, and from kind of reporting from the front lines of, of Canada's agricultural sector. Really appreciate your time on, on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. That's Brent Preston, owner of The New Farm. Now that's only the tip of the corn stalk, as they say, right? They say that, don't they? When it comes to agriculture and climate change, if this segment has only whetted your appetite, go check out the podcast webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. We've collected some resources for you there, including the Farmers for Climate Solutions Government Recommendations, Brent Preston's book, and some work that Smart Prosperity Institute has been doing in this space also. Again, that's all at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Public transit has been in the news quite a bit lately, with ridership down across Canada by a staggering 75% because of the pandemic. It's left municipalities wondering how to keep what many consider an essential service going. Meanwhile, the federal government came to the rescue two weeks ago with a big funding package. But anyone who's ever paid a transit fare might wonder how the dollars and cents of public transit work. To help us understand the economic and environmental benefits of public transit in Canada, I'm speaking to Marco D'Angelo. Marco is the president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Association, which represents over 110 transit agencies from Whitehorse to St. John's. He's joining me by phone from Toronto. Thanks for joining the program, Marco. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So, Marco, I've been saying that public transit is environmentally friendly. Can you corroborate that for me? Are there, are there emissions reductions that we know uh, from public transit? Transit has the potential to lower emissions by more than 14 million tons a year, and that helps to reduce air pollution. Also, our transition uh, from uh, diesel to electrification to other forms of propulsion, I think that will also help um, to reduce the amount of greenhouse gas emissions from vehicles. And also, uh, with these increased investments in uh, capital transit projects, and it shows that we can build more dense neighborhoods, and, that, and doing that overall will help to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from a number of different sectors. So transit's a really important uh, multiplier in helping us to get to our uh, goals. Hmm. And, and do you mind if I just dissect that a little bit, that 14 million tons, what would achieve those emissions? How, how narrowly defined is, uh, are those reductions? Well, they, they come in a number of ways. So first, uh, in terms of um, improving technology as per what comes out of the, the tailpipe from transit vehicles, mm-hmm. 
the move to renewable natural gas, that has uh, lower emissions. There are uh, a number of electric vehicle pilot projects across the country. Um, hydrogen's also being talked about as well. All of those would uh, assist greatly in reducing the amount of greenhouse gas emissions, not to mention as well, um, remembering that, uh, that, co- that one transit vehicle can replace up to 40 cars. So it's, there's just a number of ways that uh, we can reach that uh, target. Marco, how much does it cost to run public transit systems in Canada? Well, I mean, we're, we're, we, before the pandemic, uh, that was one of our uh, leading figures that really, I think, made transit stand out as a, uh, as a service across the country. And I say that because uh, the average was, uh, across the country, was we were recouping about 52% of transit's operating costs. So those were covered by the fare box, whereas there's a lot of you know, government services that, that don't recoup, but this is one that does. Um, and so we were quite uh, always proud of that, always happy that we were increasing ridership. So 52% of transit costs in, in pre-pandemic times uh, recouped through transit fares. How, how is the other 48% covered? So the, the, the gap between what's collected in the fare box and the rest of the budget typically in a city would be uh, part of that city's budget and they would uh, allocate that. And so that's where our association worked with the provincial and federal governments uh, to secure uh, extra operating funding really for the first time from the federal government operating funding and really proud and happy that happened. Uh, but that was able to give municipalities uh, the ability to close that uh, gap because uh, the c- cities do pay uh, part of uh, of transit operations, but with all the things that they're facing during COVID, plus this in addition, it really made it clear that cities needed to get to the table with the provinces and the federal government to come up with uh, with this uh, safe restart agreement. Okay, can you give a, a sense of? kind of the history of federal and provincial funding uh, going to municipalities, uh, either, you know, specifically for public transit or how it's been used for public transit? Yes. And so, I mean, in, in this is a first in terms of operating funding uh, from the federal government. So that's a first that uh, happened uh, last year uh, where they signed a uh, safe restart agreement uh, between the federal government and each province. Mm-hmm. And um, they they were provided some funds, and then there was an additional uh, transit fund where if a province wanted to uh, provide additional funds for transit, that the federal government would match that. And we thought that was a good way to um, to help to see our systems through to maintain the high level of service. We're about 84% of our pre-COVID service levels, so we've got the vehicles out there to carry those uh, 2 million people that are uh, using our, our system today. And then on the capital side, um, we've seen a lot of uh, interesting things happen there. Uh, for example, um, the federal government last uh, week uh, announced the creation of the Permanent Transit Fund. And uh, so that would provide uh, greater stability and continuity for a lot of these large-scale major projects that take up to a decade to build, but uh, you know provide generational change in mobility for people. And so that was uh, a great uh, announcement by the federal government that they're Um, really committed to building a world-class transit infrastructure. Uh, Lastly, Marco, you you talked about the pandemic and obviously that has has had a major impact on uh, on transit costs and revenues coming in right now. Um, Are there other uh, cost or revenue pressures that are making it hard for public transit agencies today? 
Well, I mean, there's there's some other sources of income that uh, you know that normally come along with with transit. Um, so, advertising, investment income, um, uh, other things that are are sold, and uh, you know, we're rethinking about how it is we can maintain revenue, uh, especially if there are changes in commuting habits going forward in the future. And so, we're starting to rethink how can we best uh, provide access and equity and connectivity between neighborhoods. And so we're going to use, uh, I think, a lot of data that's out there to really look at uh, travel and uh, demand management. Where do people need to get to? And that's going to be, I think, something very important coming out of the pandemic that that systems across the country uh, that provide transit will, will have to look at. Marco, really appreciate you being on our podcast today. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for uh, uh, for taking the time today. It's great. That was Marco D'Angelo, President and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Association. Now it's time for the 60-second report, where we invite the author of a major new report to sum it all up in, you guessed it, 60 seconds or less. This week, we've got David Sochin. He's a professor at the University of Regina and co-author of a new report for the Government of Canada forecasting the regional impacts of climate change in the prairies. It ties in nicely with our first segment on agriculture. David, I'm turning it over to you. Canada in a Changing Climate is a national assessment of how and why Canada's climate is changing, the impacts of these changes, and how we are adapting. A regional perspectives report will have chapters for each of Canada's six regions. The Government of Canada has released the first chapter. The Prairie Provinces chapter describes the region of Southern Canada with the most warming, especially in winter. Prairie ecosystems will shift as the climate warms. Climate change is amplifying the severity of floods, droughts and wildfires. Extreme weather is a threat to agriculture, but the benefit of climate change is a longer, warmer growing season. Collaborative water management can reduce the negative impacts. Social groups have unique vulnerabilities and strengths. Cities are leading the adaptation planning to reduce climate risks. This information raises awareness of key issues facing the Prairie Provinces and supports sound adaptation decisions and actions. Thank you, David. For a link to that new Regional Perspectives report, visit this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now, before I wrap up the show, we've got time for one last regular segment. It's your rapid-fire rundown of the five most important things happening in the green economy this week. It's courtesy of my colleague, Mike Moffitt. He's the Senior Director here at Smart Prosperity Institute. Mike, what have you got for us this week? Here are the five things that I'm watching this week. Number one, the United States officially rejoined the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, one of President Biden's top priorities. The U.S. is expected to announce new emission reduction commitments ahead of the U.N. Climate Conference in November. Number two, President Biden's first virtual meeting with a foreign leader was on February 23rd with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The two leaders agreed to double down on fighting climate change and committed to a high-level climate ministerial to ensure renewed collaboration. Number three, Michelin announced it will ship tires made in its Nova Scotia facility across the Atlantic Ocean on a cargo ship powered primarily by wind. The massive adapted commercial sailboat, which is to be built by a startup shipping line called Neoline, 
will reduce fossil fuel consumption by up to 90%. Number four, Ford became the latest automaker to accelerate its transition to electric cars, announcing that its European division will soon begin to phase out vehicles powered by fossil fuels. By 2026, the company will offer only electric and plug-in hybrid models, and by 2030, all passenger cars will run solely on batteries. And number five, British Columbia's public sector fund manager announced it will commit $5 billion to green bonds and cut the carbon exposure in its stock market holdings by nearly a third within the next four years, following the moves of other major investors to deal with the financial risks of climate change. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things I'm watching this week. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Mike. If you want to have a second glance at those stories and be able to click through on some links, we've got them written out for you at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Well, that's it for today's show. What did you think? I'd love to get your feedback and your ideas for what we should be covering on future shows. Drop me a line at eric at smartprosperity.ca. You can at me on Twitter or visit the podcast website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Thanks again for listening to Smart Prosperity, the podcast. My name is Eric Campbell. The next episode is out March 17th. Hope you'll tune in again then.